Jesse podcast is part of the Electronic Voice Phenomenon Strand for Liverpool Biennial 2012. It is produced by Mercy in partnership with Liverpool Biennial. For more information and to sign up for updates, visit biennial.com or mercyonline.co.uk forward slash podcasts. There are 10 days left of Liverpool Biennial 2012, and this is Mercy's penultimate podcast of the year. I know, sorry. Next week, I'll be previewing the final event of the Biennial, Changing the World from Here, when Sally Talent, the Biennial Director, will be inviting punters, professionals and artists alike to speculate on possible futures for the festival. I'll be chatting to the woman herself and calling in other experts to do our own little bit of future forecasting about what an art festival like the Biennial can do for a city like Liverpool. Meantime, today's podcast is guest hosted by Tamarin Norwood, an artist who we invited to work with us because we know she has really unique ideas about the acts of speaking and writing and the traces that they leave behind. This week, she has been collecting various spoken descriptions of artworks and thinking about how these descriptions relate to the artworks they describe. In response to the biennial theme of the unexpected guest, she imagines the descriptions as parasites living off the organism of the artwork itself. Composition is the title of a painting by the Dutch artist Piet Mondrian. He painted it in 1929. It's an oil painting on canvas. The dimensions of the painting are 17 and 3 quarter inches by 17 and 7 eighth inches, or 45.09 centimeters by 45.72 centimeters. The painting is almost an exact square. It is in the collection of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York City. The simplest way to describe composition is to say that it is a large square and within the large square are a smaller square and seven rectangles of various sizes. The square is white and the rectangles are white, red, blue, yellow, and black. These areas are separated by straight black thick lines about one half inch wide. Mondrian used a ruler to paint these lines so the lines are absolutely straight and have a precise hard edge. What you've just heard is the beginning of a verbal description of Piet Mondrian's composition, taken from artbeyondsight.org. And what's striking about this description is how full it is of factual or physical or technical information. It sounds almost like an instruction manual for seeing the canvas. And in fact, this description is unusual because it's been written with the aim of using non-visual language so that it's accessible to blind listeners who've never had the use of sight. I'm interested in this constraint of avoiding visual description, which after all is quite unusual when what you're trying to describe is visual art. It feels like it's kind of conceding the visual to the artwork and not claiming to be able to stand in for it at all as language. I'm Tamara Norwood, 
I'm an artist and I also write about art. And for a long time I've been interested in how art can be described and how it can't be described and what the relative roles might be of an artwork and its descriptions and where you might be able to draw the line between the two. Through this series of podcasts, we've been thinking about the Biennial's unexpected guest strand of programming, involving ideas about hospitality and hosting. And tangentially, we've also been thinking about how the word host gets used in connection with the word parasite. All this has made me think more about the relationship between an object and the descriptions of that object in terms of hosts and parasites. What would happen if we imagined objects as hosting their descriptions and imagine the descriptions relating to their object in the way that parasites relate to their host? I've been thinking about this and it's quite a useful analogy. It's not perfect and it breaks down here and there, but despite and maybe even sometimes because of these imperfections, it, it makes an interesting approach to the problem of writing and speaking about art. I find this parasite analogy interesting because I think a number of problems do emerge when artworks are communicated by description. A description or a discourse can get stuck to an artwork or, or it can even insinuate itself inside the artwork so intimately that you can no longer experience the work without experiencing the words or experiencing the memory of the words or experiencing your memory of the meaning of those words. Sometimes a description can be so striking or an analysis can be so critically renowned that it can overwhelm the artwork altogether and almost take its place. And sometimes a description can come to stand alone as a thing of its own and that's interesting too because it means that the artwork can maybe be, be demoted or even drop out of existence and the, the description still stands. Nevertheless, if the description is of the artwork, then some kind of dependence has to be there at some stage. Just as parasites are dependent on the life system of their hosts, descriptions are somehow dependent on their object for life or for sustenance. A description can't exist without some kind of object that it's describing, even if that object is imaginary or transient or no longer there at all. Now, with, with biological parasites, this dependence is is rarely reciprocal, it's, it's usually one way, and it's almost always at some cost to the health and the life of the host. And I've been wondering how true these things might be of the relationship between artworks and their descriptions. With these questions in mind, and with the audio-only nature of this podcast in mind, I've been collecting up some examples of audio descriptions of artworks to play to you. And I've been trying to imagine what kinds of host-parasite relationships might be going on between them. Now, if there's one thing biology really likes, it's classification. This general category of parasite gets split up into a number of subcategories, as you can imagine, according to certain qualities of the relationship between the parasite and its host. Now, this classification system does get a bit heavy when you try to start applying it cell by cell to art writing. Um, so I don't think the analogy goes all the way, but I thought I'd get into the spirit of things and see what connections I can find nevertheless. So what I've been doing is pairing up some of these parasitic classifications with some of the descriptions of art that I've been finding, just to see what comes out. The ectoparasite. A parasite living on the surface of its host rather than inside it. Listen to some more of this Mondrian description. There's a red rectangle in the upper left corner. A very thin blue rectangle is along the right edge 
taking up about one-third of the length of that side. And along the bottom edge of the painting, there is a thin yellow rectangle and a shorter, thin black rectangle. There is a large white rectangle along the top edge of the painting and another large white rectangle along the left edge. These rectangles all surround a large white square, placed off-center, so it's closer to the right and bottom edges of the painting, rather than equal distance from all four sides. The white square is the largest area in the painting, but even though it's the biggest thing in the painting and it's not centered, the entire composition feels balanced because of the colored rectangles. Color carries more visual weight than white does, so there's a subtle tension established between the colors and the white expanse. This tension visually balances the asymmetrical placement of elements. I rather like this description. It's so bristling with technical detail that it really feels like it's staying on the surface of the artwork and trying not to delve too far inside. And curiously, for all the technical information, I, I find it very hard to visualise the canvas in time with its description as the description's going along. I feel like I'd need to be using the description like instructions for drawing and then colouring in a diagram that I'd be drawing alongside the description. And then I could look at the diagram and try to see the work. On its own, the description itself always stays one step removed. It tells you what the painting is like, but it never claims to actually take you there and put you in front of the painting. It never sucks the lifeblood from the painting because it never gets close enough to sink in its teeth. So the reason I like this description is because the artwork seems to pretty much emerge unscathed. Or perhaps it's more true to say that it remains unscathed because it never really emerges at all. It remains hidden behind this hard shell of description. The description might be covering it up, but at least it never seems to quite touch it. So all in all, it seems like quite a respectful parasite. Yes, it does depend on the artwork and it uses it as a host, but at the same time it seems to provide its host with a shield, protecting it maybe from more invasive parasites, perhaps? And all things considered, it seems like quite a good pairing of host and parasite. The kind of static and mathematical language feels quite appropriate both visually and conceptually to the artwork itself, and even if you're unable to visualise the picture, the sound and the grammar of the really neatly constructed language seems to present a linguistic equivalent to the really neatly constructed picture plane. So even though the description doesn't claim to recreate the experience of seeing the artwork firsthand, it does seem to offer a separate but equivalent first-hand experience. Now, if the Mondrian description is a kind of ectoparasite living on the surface of its host, albeit in a very sympathetic and shielding way, what kind of description would an endoparasite be? The endoparasite. A parasite living inside its host rather than on its surface. Listen to this description, again borrowed from artbeyondsight.org. Sounds to me like it begins on the surface of the work and then starts to burrow its way inside. One, open parentheses, number 31, close parentheses. Painted in 1950 by American painter Jackson Pollock, 1912 to 1956. Oil and enamel on canvas. Eight feet, ten inches high by 17 feet 6 inches wide, 270 by 531 centimeters. 
The picture hanging on this wall is painted on a very large, wide canvas. If you stand in the middle, it seems to expand indefinitely on either side of you. It's an abstract work without any hint of representation. Its colors are somber, black, blue, gray, brown, and white, on an off-white background. It's painted in Jackson Pollock's famous drip technique, and there's no better way of describing the way it looks than to explain the way it was painted. Now, the description's already become more fluid and less technical, perhaps concerned in tone, more with the physical or even relational experience of the painting. But this is where the description starts to actually crawl inside the artwork. And in this case, what's inside the work is its process. While you're listening, keep an ear open for references to touch and texture and physically navigable topologies that are used as much as possible in place of what the audio describers have been calling visual language. Pollock laid the canvas flat on the floor. Then he walked around with a can of paint, using first one colour and then another, pouring and dripping paint all over the canvas. He would not pour the paint directly from the can, rather he dripped it from brushes or from sticks used for mixing house paint. As he walked, he would fling his arms in sweeping gestures, so the paint trails in long, blobby ropes across the canvas. Some are straight, some curve, and they vary in length. He was able to control where the paint would be thick and where it would form fine, thin lines. He carried on until he had covered the canvas with a deep, dense web of trailing ropes of paint. The bare, off-white surface of the canvas is visible in many places, particularly around the edges and corners of this unframed painting. One can imagine the experience of running one's hands over its knobbly surface and following the trails of paint with one's fingertips. It's immediately more invasive, isn't it? Not just the invitation to imagine touching the surface, but the description of the painting's duration, the time the painting spent still wet, still being made, with the paint actually suspended in the air between bucket, brush, stick and canvas. And this description makes the painting anything but static. The work itself emerges as leftovers of an event. And consequently, the event, I think, actually gets more description than what's left behind on the canvas in this description. And if you think about it, this kind of description of Pollock's work and the way it's conflated with his working practice recalls a lot of these very well-known studio photographs of the artist at work, photographs that have actually been displayed on gallery walls right alongside the paintings that they show being made. You can kind of imagine these photographs as descriptions too. They're all part of the apparatus surrounding the artwork and feeding it into the wider discourse of art. The insight that these descriptions can lend to the artwork by crawling inside the working process and then displaying that working process alongside the finished canvas is a good example of how art and art discourse depart from this host-parasite relationship of non-reciprocal dependence. It's true that the artwork could exist without the description, while the description couldn't have come to life without the artwork, but the contribution that Pollock's practice has made to art history 
contains the apparatus surrounding the canvases, the descriptions of photographs, the interviews. They've all been feeding on the inside of the practice rather than just on its surface. So here you can see how the, the host and the parasite are mutually sustaining one another. So perhaps in this case, the relationship is more symbiotic than parasitic. Now here's another kind of host-parasite relationship between an artwork and its description. In the 1950s, Alan Caprow was writing a lot about Jackson Pollock. And as an artist himself, he began as a painter and then he gradually removed paint from his practice and was just sort of left with the practice itself. In the 1960s and onwards, his happenings and other kinds of events set out to avoid all kinds of artistic and literary forms in the hope that they'd blur seamlessly from art into life. And if you couldn't experience them live, then you couldn't experience them at all. As artworks, this makes the happenings quite peculiar hosts. They have to be treated with great care, because somehow it feels that they're barely there at all. So with this in mind, what do you think of this? It's a possible description of a happening Caprao gave during his 1966 lecture, How to Make a Happening. Everybody's at a train station. It's hot. There are lots of big cartons sitting all over the arcade. One by one, they start to move, sliding and careening drunkenly in every direction, lunging into commuters and one another, accompanied by loud breathing sounds over the public address system. Now it's winter and it's cold and dark, and all around little blue lights go on and off at their own speed while three large brown gunny sack constructions drag an enormous pile of ice and stones over bumps, losing most of it, and blankets keep falling over everything from the ceiling. A hundred iron barrels and gallon wine jugs hanging on ropes swing back and forth, crashing like church bells, spewing glass all about. The parasitoid. A parasite so pernicious, it is classified also as a predator. It lays its larvae inside the host, and when they hatch, the host is consumed, sterilized, or killed. Suddenly, mushy shapes pop up from the floor, and painters slash at curtains dripping with action. A wall of trees tied with colored rags advances on the crowd, scattering everybody, forcing them to leave. Eating is going on incessantly, eating and vomiting, and eating and vomiting, all in relentless yellow. There are muslin telephone booths for all, with a record player or microphone that tunes everybody in on everybody else. Coughing, you breathe noxious fumes or the smell of hospitals and lemon juice. The language of this description is very dramatic and very evocative, and it creates a, a really palpable image of a certain kind of event in which lots of strange and unrelated things are happening simultaneously and in really quick succession, and in which it's not clear what's happening where or in what order or why and so on. And it's not so much the vocabulary, I think, but the grammar that creates this feeling of drama in this description. The vocabulary itself, for the most part, is fairly plain. And I think the plainness of the vocabulary in the really close-up, list-like structure of the description is contriving to support a claim that this language really isn't literary at all, that it's just stating the fact. And I think there's a reason for this. Because of the particularly delicate, barely there quality of the host artwork, which of course is long gone by the time the description reaches us, 
the description needs to be a particularly delicate kind of parasite that leaves barely a mark on the body of the host. It would need to be completely transparent if writing transparent language were a possible thing to do. But instead, what Kaprau has written is very strong and forceful, so the description has a presence all of its own, quite independent of the happening it set out to describe. The reason this parasite strikes me as a parasitoid, a predatory parasite, is that while it might have started life as an organism dependent on the artwork that it describes, eventually it's outgrown it. The artwork itself inevitably has vanished in time, but what's happened is now the description has taken centre stage. Now this is always a problem for artworks that are shaped like events, and particularly for artworks shaped like events that are meant to be indistinguishable from everyday life. If this kind of work needs to be described, it's difficult to know how that description would best be managed, because it's always going to cause these problems. I wonder whether the best solution actually would be to not describe it at all, let it get lost into everyday life even if that means it has to fall off the edge of art, never be documented, never make it into art discourse of any kind. But whatever the solution, this literary and really sensually detailed description isn't it. Rather than tiptoeing around the edge of the happening and leaving it as the lifelike event it was conceived of, and an event, remember, intended to avoid borrowing any artistic or literary form, so that it might blur seamlessly with everyday life. This parasite has instead embedded itself into the host and then developed into a fully functioning and self-sufficient organism in its own right. And in the end, it's outlived its host, perhaps even sterilising it along the way. And I think with this description, the damage that the parasite does to its host is pretty fatal. The description goes on. Coughing, you breathe noxious fumes or the smell of hospitals and lemon juice. A nude girl runs after the racing pool of a searchlight and throws water into it. Slides and movies projected in motion over walls and hurrying people depict hamburgers, big ones, huge ones, red ones, skinny ones, flat ones, and so on. You push things around like packing crates. Words rumble past, whispering, dida, baroom, lovely, lovely, love me. Shadows jiggle on screens, power saws and lawnmowers screech just like the subway at Union Square. Tin cans rattle, soaking rags slush, and you stand up to shout questions at shoeshine boys and old ladies. Long silences when nothing at all happens, when bang, there you are facing yourself in a mirror jammed at you. Listen, a cough from the alley. You giggle, talk to someone nonchalantly while eating strawberry jam sandwiches. Electric fans start. Wafting breezes of new car smell past your nose as leaves bury heaps of whining, burping, foul, pinky mess. I think this problem comes up again in the work of Tracy Emin. But this time it's articulated in quite a different way. I think when Emin talks about her work, it's not always altogether clear which bit's the host and which bit's the parasite. Her practice plays on an ambiguity set up between her own life and her artwork. And a lingering extension of that ambiguity is an ambiguity between what does and doesn't count as art. So when she talks about her practice, is that part of the practice too? Listen to this. Gregor's girlfriend lived down the road in this 
what we thought was a really nice council flat at the time. To us, it was posh. Anyway, so Gregor said, oh, God, I'm in such bad trouble. I've got to buy rosebush. I've got oh. to buy rosebush. Are we going to this, was it wedding? Yeah, I was going for a, to, um, Birthday, a wedding posh dinner. Posh dinner, wedding, whatever it was. And he had to buy this rosebush. And he'd been given £15 to go to Columbia Road to buy rosebush. So what he'd said to his girlfriend, OK, I'm going to go now really early which was actually Saturday morning about four o'clock to get to Columbia Road to buy Rosebush, which meant he was coming to me in Sarah's shop because we were open all night Saturday. The co-speciated parasite. A parasite that has evolved alongside its host and consequently has adapted to a singular host species. The particular brand, you might say, that's evolved around Emin's artistic practice allows for this particular kind of ambiguity between being and performing and between performance and practice. With Emin, potentially everything feels like it's at risk of being co-opted into the practice. And so it's difficult to say whether the casting of an artwork, its anecdotal description, actually forms part of the artwork or not. But either way, it's certainly true to say that these two organisms, the artwork and the anecdote, the host and the parasite, have grown up and evolved into what they are in tandem, so that this co-speciation has created a brand that prepares for and then is able to contain whatever Emin's artwork turns out to be. The shop Tracy Emin ran with Sarah Lucas for six months in the early 1990s has passed into legend over the past two decades because they originally ran it together when they were very little known and they've since both established very uh, successful high-profile careers as artists. And this extract is taken from an 80-minute interview with Emin recorded by Tate by a curator and longtime friend Gregor Muir who was also around at the time when the shop was running. What I think is striking about this interview is how full it is of detailed personal anecdotes, sometimes very personal anecdotes, and that these anecdotes are completely sprawling in their scope, interrupting themselves to add in extra detail here and there and describing in depth the circumstances and the social milieu of the enterprise of the the shop she ran. In this interview, the language isn't evocative of an artwork or an artistic practice, like Caprao's description of his happening was evocative of that event. The language here isn't describing a practice. It is a practice going on in the present. Or at least, it's always potentially at risk of being a practice going on at present. Host and Parasite are by now sufficiently comfortable sharing the very same domain, that they seem to fuse indistinctly. And it becomes unrewarding to try to differentiate between them. And at 11 o'clock in the morning, Gregor said, if I don't get to Columbia Road, I'm in so much trouble. I'm in lots of trouble. And Sarah said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll make you a rosebush. And I'm saying that like an Australian way, but she did. She, Sarah then cut out letters, rosebush, put them all onto bits of wire, stuck them into a bit of like foam in a vase, and it said to him, here's yeah. your rosebush. She said you could have that for a tenner. And she said, yeah. And would have left Gregor 15 quid. Gregor said, girlfriend won't take it. She won't take it. I'll be in so much trouble. I can't. And Gregor said, I really want it. I really want it for myself. I can't. I don't know what to do. Anyway, he left it. 
Yeah. Went, got in loads of trouble, everything. You get in more trouble now, weren't you, for me telling this story? Anyway, got in more trouble. But then guess what? Where did you see the rosebush next? It was in Michael? the Museum of Modern Art in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the reason everyone in the audience laughs when the rosebush turns up at the MoMAR is because in the story, it comes from this very organic, everyday scenario. This hilarity and shock of difference between these two circumstances, I think, dramatises what's going on between the parasite and the host in Emin's practice, which are so integrated in their co-evolution that they can play off one another to dramatic and even comic effect. Now, we shouldn't forget that the rosebush itself is Lucas's work and not Emin's, although it emerged from the shared project that the two women set up and which remains part of the narrative that Emin tells and retells about her life story. That an object made by another artist can be seamlessly told into Emin's practice just by being told is indicative of the particular force that anecdote can have within artistic practice – as the parasite promiscuously draws disparate events, practices, objects and ideas towards and even into the body of its host. Thanks to the host parasite dramatics going on in and around Emin's practice, Lucas's rosebush from the Momar is now inseparable, in my mind at least, from this Gregor, his dinner party and his early morning rush to the Caledonian Road. When it comes down to it, who's to say which bit is which? The more I think about artworks and descriptions in terms of hosts and parasites, the more I wonder whether it might not be the other way round. Perhaps the host, the more substantial animal in the relationship and the one with a longer, slower lifespan, isn't the individual artwork, but the mass of human discourse that surrounds and contains it. And the artworks of the parasites. Smaller, temporary guests in teeming numbers living upon and within and alongside this living conversation that goes on and on across geography and time. I'm not sure which way round I prefer. <laughs> 